We now continue our reading of God's Word in Daniel 7, verse 15. Read through to the end of the chapter. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on, his head, on its head, and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces." As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. May God bless that reading as well as the proclamation of his word this afternoon. Following the proclamation of God's word and in response to it, we'll sing together once again from Psalm 72, the stanzas 4, 5, and 10 as our response to hearing the good news. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you think of the word apocalypse, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Is it the end of the world? Is it a major disaster of some kind? Is it a horrific event, something characterized by death and destruction? I begin by by asking this question because as we come to the beginning of the second part of Daniel, we're entering the strange and fascinating world of apocalyptic literature. When most people hear that word apocalyptic, what comes to mind are the last days. Droughts and plagues and fires and monsters, earthquakes and famines and giant dragons. It's all that scary stuff. It's the stuff of nightmares. But the word apocalypse, the word that has has come to characterize all of these frightening images, that word actually has a much more positive meaning. Our word apocalypse comes from a Greek word that means uncovering. Taking the cover off of something, revealing it. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. 
And that last book of the Bible has a lot in common with the second half of Daniel, which begins here in Daniel 7. Now, speaking of apocalyptic literature, I I found a great definition in one of the commentaries on Daniel of this word. And he describes apocalyptic literature as the sort of prophecy that seeks to enlighten and encourage people with a vision of the God who will come to impose his kingdom on the wreckage and rebellion of human history, communicating that message through the use of wild, scary, imaginative, bizarre, and head-scratching imagery. And for sure, that is a great description of our text in Daniel 7. Because here we're confronted with some of that wild, bizarre imagery and a bit of a challenge for our interpretive skills. Now, the broad outline is pretty clear. There are some uh, controversial elements, as we'll see. But in the middle of it all, there is a message for us that is profoundly encouraging. It's a message that is quite literally apocalyptic. Because we could say it, it takes the cover off of the machinery of history. We're welcome to see what's going on under the surface, behind the, the scenes look at what's driving what is visible. And that message was a profound encouragement for God's people 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago, and remains an encouragement for us today. Now, the book of Daniel is arranged thematically, not chronologically necessarily. We can see right away in the first verse of this chapter. We are now going back in time to the first year of the reign of King Belshazzar before the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. And during this time, when Daniel was was pushed off to the side in public life, he was still active as a recipient of the Lord's special revelation. And through a series of visions, the Lord reveals his plans to Daniel. And Daniel, through his writing, he communicates these plans to God's faithful people throughout the centuries. And as we read, the vision begins with four beasts, four beasts representing four rulers of great kingdoms, great empires. And we're reminded of King Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2, that great image of the man in broad outline The message of Daniel's vision in chapter 7 is much the same. But there are some very important differences that begin even before these four beasts appear. Because if you'll notice, the first thing that Daniel saw in his vision was not the four beasts, but rather the great sea. He saw the great sea being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. And right here, right from the very beginning, there's some important symbolism here that really leads us to the heart of a message of encouragement for God's people. Because that great sea, in Scripture, the great sea represents the Gentile world. And that great sea is being stirred up by the four winds of heaven. And when you think about the number four, and what that number four represents, you might think of the expression, the four corners of the earth which we read in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Or the four points on the compass, north, south, east, and west. And so this is the powerful wind of heaven coming from all directions, and that wind represents the Spirit of God. 
And so what we see here at the beginning is the Spirit of God moving powerfully, stirring up the waves of the great sea, the Gentile world, which is so dark and unstable and mysterious. Because the sea in Scripture, the sea, we, we, we might think when we think of the sea as the, the placid ocean, the Caribbean, a cruise, something beautiful going to the beach. But in Scripture, the sea has this connotation as a forbidding place a threatening place. It's a place that's inhabited by the great sea monsters. It's a place of danger and a place of fear. But up from that boiling sea, stirred up by the Spirit, come four beasts, four great beasts. They don't come up by their own accord. They don't come up by their own initiative. They're driven from the sea. They're they're brought up, drawn up by that heavenly wind. And so when we're introduced to these creatures, we see the parallels with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in in, uh, Daniel 2. Because the great beasts, they're all different. Each one is different. They're unique. They're all strange creatures. They're mixtures of different types of animals. And they represent these four great empires. So the Babylonian Empire is represented by a beast like a lion with eagle's wings. The Persian Empire is like a lopsided bear with a rib between its with ribs between its teeth. The Greek Empire is a leopard, but it's no ordinary leopard. An ordinary leopard is fast enough, but this leopard has four wings and four heads. And finally, there's the Roman Empire. And, and the Roman Empire's features are not, that, that final beast, the features are not described in terms of one particular animal. But Daniel just describes it as being terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, with great iron teeth and a destructive power greater than all of the empires that had come before it. But now take a closer look at the descriptions of these beasts, because these beasts are in action in this vision, but they're in action only after being acted upon. The first one, the lion with the eagle's wings. Its wings are plucked off. It's lifted from the ground, passive once again. It's made to stand upon two feet. The mind of a man is given to it. And so it's clear that this beast represents Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. It represents his descent into insanity and then his restoration. In Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, The prophets describe Babylon as a lion and as an eagle as well. So so what we see here is the fact that that empire is being directed. It's being guided. It's being led. It's not acting independently. In the second beast, we encounter the bear. And that bear is already involved in the act of devouring something. And that bear is told what to do. And once again, the bear. The bear is the empire of the Medes and the Persians. But it's not an independent operator. It is acting on orders, following orders as a servant. Then the third beast. The third beast is that winged, multi-headed leopard. What a strange creature that one is. The Greek empire. And that Greek empire that spread so rapidly and spread so far that that leopard couldn't accurately represent the speed without the addition of four wings. And we already heard about Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, the young empire who fancied himself a god. 
who imagined that he had the power. But we read here, the dominion was given to him. Now that final beast is different. It's worse than all the others. It's more ferocious. It's more deadly. It's much stronger. It has great iron teeth. It has crushing feet. And it also has ten horns. Then it has an eleventh little horn that sprouts up after three are plucked out. Now that passive element, that element of being acted upon that we saw in the first three beasts is not as obvious with this fourth beast. But there's a sudden change in scenery, a sudden change in context in the vision that reveals that even this mighty empire with all of these horns, and horns always represent power, even that mighty empire, that great and ferocious beast is not everything it's cracked up to be. It's not as great and as powerful as it imagines itself to be. Because what we see is suddenly the scene shifts to the frenzied, from the, the, the frenzied action of earth, the struggle of the beast for supremacy. We are moved and welcomed into the throne room of the Almighty. So we're welcomed into the command center of human history, our second point. And thrones are placed. The Ancient of Days, the all-powerful, eternal creator of heaven and earth, the one who changes times and seasons, the one who removes kings and sets up kings, takes his seat on the throne. So what we have here is a picture of awesome stability. There's no tumult. There's no conflict. All there is is the Ancient of Days clothed in white, with pure white hair on his head, seated in calm, perfectly arranged authority on his chariot, his chariot throne of fiery flames with wheels of burning fire, with a stream of fire coming out from before him. And here we have a picture of the holiness of God, his purity, his grandeur, his greatness, his power. And then that fiery chariot with those flames shooting out from before him, representing his righteousness and his justice. Now, this is the imagery of many of the Psalms, including Psalm 50, the verses 3 and 4, where it says, Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. This is what it means when we talk about the Lord of hosts. He's the Lord of armies. A thousand thousands serving him. Ten thousand times ten thousand standing before him, awaiting his orders. And so his lordship, holy and just and perfect, all-powerful, makes these mighty, ferocious beasts, as scary as they were, as great as they were, as great as they imagined themselves to be, makes them seem like insignificant little beings in comparison. And so that fourth beast, that beast with the little horn, is judged. And that little horn is speaking. And Daniel talks later on in, uh, uh, about the types of things that the little horn was saying and what this judgment was all about. But for, ma- for now, that's not the central point because the central message is coming. The dominion of the beasts is taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season. But then someone new steps onto the stage. 
And that someone new is one like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man. And we know that title. Son of Man, Psalm 8, speaks about the Son of Man. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the Lord Jesus himself referred to himself many times as the Son of Man, as we read together in Matthew's Gospel. And during the reign of the fourth beast, the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven to appear before the Ancient of Days to be presented to him. And here, when we think about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, we need to remember where we are located, at least in terms of this vision, where Daniel places us. Because this vision is not talking about the Son of Man coming to earth on the clouds, about his return or about his second coming. It's speaking about his ascension to heaven, where he would go to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. So what we see here is the Son of Man having completed his earthly ministry. And then to this one, like a Son of Man, a human being, but very different, much greater, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, or better, would worship him. And so he is one like a son of man, but at the same time, he has something far greater. He is also the object of worship. And his dominion is an eternal dominion. It's an everlasting dominion, a dominion that's never going to pass away, and his kingdom shall never pass be destroyed and that's what we read in hebrews chapter 2 the verses 6 through 10 i'd like to read those verses with you hebrews chapter 2 the verses 6 through 10 and there it says it has been testified somewhere psalm 8 what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him you made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, that's why... In Matthew, Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Because people were talking. There were various theories going around because the expectation of the coming of the Messiah was widespread during the time of Jesus because of this messianic vision of Daniel chapter 7 and especially because of the prophetic visions that we'll hear about, Lord willing, in the coming weeks or months, especially in Daniel 9. And so when Jesus traveled around Judea and Galilee Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of God and proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, when he referred to himself repeatedly as the Son of Man, he was making an incredible declaration. And it was a declaration that any faithful Jew would recognize from the scriptures. The prophecies of Daniel were finally being fulfilled. And this was one like a son of man. This was the heavenly king. This is the king whose dominion shall have no end. This is the king who's truly human, one like a son of man, but truly divine, 
the king who would be worshipped by every tribe and language group and nation under heaven. This was the stone who would crush the kingdoms of the world. That fourth great frightening beast with teeth of iron, with crushing feet, that fourth beast would fall. That little horn, that little arrogant horn with eyes and a mouth that boasted of great things that seemed so much greater than all the others would be destroyed. The ten horns were the ten Caesars of Rome, from Julius Caesar to Vespasian, who ruled these Caesars who ruled during the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus and during the ministry of his apostles. And that little horn, that little horn that, that receives special mention is particularly horrible. He blasphemes against the Almighty. He speaks words against the Most High. He boasts. He declares his greatness. He puts himself in God's place thinking to change the times and the law, putting himself where only God can be. And God's people are given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, a total of three and a half, or half of seven, the number of fullness. So that's the time. Now all of this, all of this symbolism points to the emperor Nero. And three of the the preceding emperors before him were assassinated to bring him to the throne. And for three and a half years, he persecuted the people of God. Now, all of this comes back in Revelation chapter 13, including much of the same imagery. And so if anyone fits this bill, it's Nero. Now, a little bit about Nero, in case you don't know. Nero murdered a number of members of his own family, including, horribly, his pregnant wife, who he kicked to death. Now, Nero also was a pervert, He loved to watch people being tortured. He would dress up as a wild animal to attack and also to sexually assault his male and female prisoners. He used the bodies of Christians as human torches to light his garden parties. And he was the one who launched the first official government-authorized persecution of of the Christians. Now, this man was leader of the world. And we know that as go the leaders, so go the people. In the words of one commentator, one historian, Rome had become the sewer of the world. And God's people were suffering because of Rome's descent into horrible perversion and wickedness. So during this, during this time, God's people would have to endure. They would have to endure for a time. They would be worn out. There would be tremendous suffering. But that suffering would come to an end. Judgment would come, and the process of handing over the dominion to the fifth kingdom would begin. Nero's pathetic life, his horrible life, would end in suicide. And a year later, a year after Nero, Rome would be ruled in the same year, in the span of a year, by four different emperors. So the empire of iron was proving itself to have feet of clay. And as the church grew... The empire crumbled. And the citizens of the fifth kingdom would be given a special task. Because the dominion was given to the Son of Man, but, as we read, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven would be given to the people of the saints of the Most High in service to the great king. 
And so, brothers and sisters, for us, the calling for God's people is clear. This is a restoration of that dominion mandate, that cultural mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve when he created them in his image. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that we have put off the old self with its practices, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And what does it mean to be created and recreated in God's image and recreated in the image of Christ? Well, being created in God's image means being created to rule on his behalf. It means having dominion over creation. It means working and governing the earth as God's representatives. When Adam and Eve fell, that that image was greatly damaged. But now in Christ, as, as new creatures, we receive that mandate once again. We are being renewed in his image as new creatures. The Apostle Paul gave this encouragement to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He said, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So we're shown what our position is as God's people, and the Lord willing, we'll hear more about this in the second sermon this evening. But for now, there's a real tendency, a very real tendency in modern Christianity to over-spiritualize the Christian faith. And what happens is that our faith is separated from life. So there's the secular world. The secular world is made up of all the practical aspects of life. And then there's the religious side. Now that religious side is separate. It's distinct from the secular part of life. doesn't really have a whole lot to do with it. And sadly, that's why the church can be pushed off into the corner somewhere. That's why it can be safely domesticated, not threatening to the established order, not making much of an impact, really, because faith and religion has become something completely privatized. It has to do with your inner life at best. It has to do with saving souls, and it has to do with the life to come. But it has little, if anything, to do with life in this world. And so what we see is that the church is being marginalized today. It's not being treated as the outpost of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven, the fifth kingdom, but it's being treated as just one more social club or special interest group among many. And we can see that by and large, sadly, Christians are okay with that. But we need to seriously consider, brothers and sisters, if the way that we think about our calling as the church is being shaped more by our culture or by God's word. In all the turmoil of this world, all of the upheaval, all of the frenzied activity, that activity and that, that, that clamor, that riotous activity in which the great beasts of this world are making their boasts and blaspheming God, because we're still in the midst of that, we must never fool ourselves and imagine that Daniel's vision is something about the, the distant past only, but things are different nowadays. In all of this, we must remember Daniel's vision. 
The Ancient of Days is seated on his throne, that flaming chariot. Just picture that. The Ancient of Days is in complete control. Nothing escapes him. There's not one rogue molecule in this universe, let alone rogue ruler or leader. The Son of Man has been presented before the Ancient of Days. He's been crowned with glory and honor. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It's not like those kingdoms of the beasts who are stirred up out of the great sea, who are sent here and commanded to go there and then taken down over here. These great beasts, these leaders who are completely dependent on the Ancient of Days, but who at the same time absolutely refuse to acknowledge their dependence and who face God's judgment because of their rebellion. So the Ancient of Days is seated on his throne. The Son of Man has been crowned with glory and honor, and we are citizens of that everlasting kingdom. And so as citizens of that everlasting kingdom, brothers and sisters, we have a job to do. We have a job to do to exercise dominion on behalf of that great king, that great king who is in control. And because he is in control and because we know that and we trust in that, we can do that job. We can fulfill our calling with confidence and we can do that with boldness and we can do that without fear. Now, of course, like the saints who lived in that time, times, and half a time in the days of Nero, we may suffer. The presence of evil, we know the presence of evil in this world is going to be a reality until the king returns in his glory to judge the living and the dead. But brothers and sisters, remember and meditate on the meaning of the word apocalypse. The Lord has taken the cover off. He has revealed the glorious reality that lies behind the temporary things of this world. And we know what's really going on. So we can be bold and we can be faithful. We can live as the church of Christ, the outpost of the kingdom of heaven. With everything that that living entails. And we can do that with absolute confidence. Because we know that the ancient of days is in control. We know that the son of man sits upon his throne. We know that these little arrogant horns of this world will face the fiery judgment when the books are opened. And we know that our hope does not lie in the powers of this world, and it, but it lies in the power that is above every other power, above every dominion, above every ruler, above every authority in this world. And in him, brothers and sisters, we are and we will be more than conquerors. Amen.